0: This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 115. You ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where
1: we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising
0: money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm really excited you're here to learn with me about apartment building investing. My name is Michael Blanc. So, if you're looking for a way to quit your job, shore up your retirement or whatever to achieve financial freedom so you can do what you want in my experience over the last 15 years apartment buildings is the way to do it and i'm here to tell you you can do it even if you don't have the experience yourself or any of your own cash really excited about the possibilities for that now today we're going to talk about sec laws and sec considerations one of those things that people are always a little bit scared of is when I'm raising money, oh, there's this thing called these SEC laws, and I might violate SEC laws, and oh my gosh, there's attorneys involved and things of that nature. Today on this show, we're going to dispel all of that. While you do have to worry about it, you don't have to worry about it. You know what I mean? Today I have with us on the show SEC attorney Mauricio Raul and he's done dozens and dozens of syndications, and he's going to here share with you the process. And you usually will see from that process that while you have to quote worry about, in other words, you have to be concerned about the SEC laws, you have to make sure you don't violate them. The actual process of complying is not that difficult. And so Mauricia is going to walk us through the process. and going to talk about why should you worry about SEC considerations? Um, how can you go about raising money? Okay, can who can you talk to? Can you advertise? What is a pre-existing relationship? What can you do, what you can't do, and what can you do under this exemption versus that exemption? And then he's going to talk about the process. So from the time you say, okay, Mauricio, go, what does that process look like between that and actually getting to closing? So hopefully it will dispel the huge mysteries and the angst around SEC attorneys and laws and things of that nature. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Mauricio Raul. Here we go. Mauricio, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks, Michael, for having me. Really appreciate it. I haven't had an SEC attorney on the show in a long while, and I'm just really pleased to have you. I know you work a lot with real estate guys. You do so many multifamily and other kinds of syndication. So I'm really pleased that you're here. Give us a little background on yourself.
1: Well, happy to be here. I'm not like most lawyers. I'm actually known a little bit as like the anti-lawyer. So hopefully I don't come across as too stuffy, as I apologize to all my colleagues out there. I'm an SEC attorney, which basically means I'm a syndication lawyer. I specialize in helping real estate investors kind of scale their businesses and and go into bigger deals and help them raise the money, you know, want to make sure they do that legally and and not end up in jail and (laughs) roommates with Bernie Madoff. So that's kind of my main goal. or that's what I, that's really what I do 100% of my time. I used to be a litigator. I used to do securities work but in the litigation world, which means I used to pick things up when, you know, when it was too late, you know, there was a lawsuit happening and I used to do the defense work and, you know, court appearances, depositions, all that stuff. The law firm life wasn't for me, so I ended up uh, going to work with the real estate guys with Robert and Russ and did all their syndications and and then kind of branched out on my own. And right now, that's all I'm doing, 100% syndication work. Just happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. And obviously, being a litigator, you've kind of seen the other side of what happens when we're not careful about what we do. So today's a little bit of a cautionary tale. What I have found, even though you have to pay attention to it, people kind of get wigged out about about SEC laws. But the bottom line is, you know, this is why we have someone like yourself who has to figure out the details. So we as a syndicator have to know the high level stuff. And you're going to ask us how you want this done, how you want that done. But before we get into that, why should we even worry about the consequences of raising money the wrong way?
1: Yeah, I, let me just make a comment about what you just said, too. I mean, you know, as a syndicator, you're kind of a quarterback of the team, right? You're putting all the pieces together, almost like a jigsaw puzzle. And the legal piece is just one of those pieces. And that's where I kind of fit in. But the reason you need the legal piece is because anytime you are raising money from other people where the returns are generated from your efforts, you are dealing with a security. I don't care if it's in a corporate form, LLC, you know, a corporation, whether it's a profit sharing agreement, a handshake, a high five, the actual structure doesn't matter. If you're doing all the work, you're generating the returns, and you're taking other people's money, then you're dealing with a security, which means we've got to comply not only with the federal securities laws, but the state securities laws as well.
0: So what do we have to pay attention to when you say security, SEC laws? Like, what do we need to worry about here as syndicators?
1: Yeah. So typically, once we've figured out that we're dealing with a security, and there, and there are certain instances, Michael, where you know, if you've got one person, maybe two, there's ways we can structure something that we kind of avoid being a security. And, and the key there is going to be everybody needs to be actively involved, it's almost like, hey, you and I start a business together and we're both working hard. And and that's obviously not a security if you're starting a business. But the minute you have passive investors, you are dealing with a security. And then what I tell people trying to keep it as high level as possible is that I really tell them there's really only three things we need to worry about when we're dealing with a security. Number one, we need to either register that security with the SEC, or we need to find an exemption to registration, or it's illegal. I mean, it's that simple. I mean, those are the three things we worry about. Register it or find an exemption or it's illegal. I hope most people aren't looking to do illegal offerings, right? And when I say illegal, it doesn't mean Bernie Madoff, right? Obviously, nobody, hopefully nobody that's listening on here is thinking about defrauding anybody intentionally and all that stuff. But even if you fail to disclose certain things or you leave things out, those kind of things can lead to an illegal offering as well. So we've just got to be super careful about doing that kind of stuff. And then registration, that's like the last thing you want to do. Registering with the SEC is going to take you, you know, at least a couple years to get that through. And it's going to cost you six or seven figures. And so I always joke from stage, you know, I do these presentations on stage all the time. It's like, how many of you that are in contract to a multifamily apartment have two years to wait for the government to approve your syndication? It's just, It's just not realistic. So we're always focused on the exemptions. And that's where I spend 100% of my time is finding the right exemption and then following the rules of those
0: exemptions. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk a little about the downside. I mean, since you've been on the litigation side, you know, what have you seen? What could happen if someone doesn't quite follow the law? Maybe they think they can get away with it, something. And what could happen? Like what's kind of the cautionary tale if, if a syndicator does not pay attention to this?
1: Great question. At a minimum what I tell my, my students is that you are essentially guaranteeing the investment because if you are found to be in violation of the law, then the remedy for the investors is what we call restitution, which is they're entitled to get their money back. So even if you lost money for no fault of your own, let's say you were in the middle of the financial crisis in 2008, you know, everything implodes, you lose money, which a lot of people did. It wasn't really your fault in terms of any negligence or mismanagement, but if you didn't follow the law, then you are required, to the extent you have the money, obviously, are required to repay the investors, make them whole, plus whatever the legal rate of interest is. So that's at a minimum. Then from there you're going into sanctions, right? So the SEC or most likely the states, in all honesty, the SECs, they don't pay too much attention to the sort of the regular syndicators that we are, you know, your one, two million dollar, five million dollar, ten million dollar raise really not what they're looking for. They're looking for the big boys who are really defrauding. You're probably dealing with a state securities person or compliance. They can then sanction you, which means that you may be prohibited continuing to raise money in that particular state. Or if it's the SEC, you might be prohibited from raising money in the future. So those are kind of the two most common ones. And obviously from there, fines and technically you can end up in jail. Although I think that's unlikely unless you're you know doing some major defrauding or, or really screwing things up. Right, so,
0: so really, paying attention to sec laws really protects the syndicator at the end of the day and of course things are only become relevant when things go sideways things go bad and investors start pointing fingers and that's when they start calling up the state sec and the federal sec and if they don't have the proper forms and exemptions filed that's when you can get into problem should someone always do uh, disclosures for any size deal Like, mean, if i'm buying a hundred thousand dollar duplex you know do not spend ten thousand dollars in a ppm Or is there some kind of line where you say, you know, at what point do you say, look, you really should do this? And at one point does it become kind of like the gray zone?
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's definitely a compliance cost. I mean, not only attorney fees, but also filing fees and stuff. And that typically is going to run you about 15 to 20 grand. So it doesn't typically make sense to really go raise 100 to 200 grand because your compliance cost, the load is too high. I mean, 200 grand and you're spending 20, that's 10%. But even if you raise $1 and you raise it from one person, that could be a security and you may be required to do the full disclosures. So it's not the amount of money you raise and it's not the amount of people where this hinges is, is your investor an accredited investor or a non-accredited investor? And let's just review real quick. An accredited investor is someone who has a million dollars in net worth excluding their primary residence or has earned a couple hundred thousand dollars the last couple of years with a reasonable expectation of earning that much this time. If you have a non-accredited investor, you are required by law to give them the full disclosure packet, the same kind of disclosure that you would give when you're doing a registration. That's the expensive stuff. That's what gets you out of hand. If you're dealing exclusively with accredited investors, then you're not required by law to do a full disclosure, which is what we call a private placement memorandum. You actually get to kind of choose what disclosures you give as long as they're complete. And to me, it's a, you mentioned it before, it's a double-edged sword. The disclosures and the laws are, in theory, there to protect the investor, right? It's the little old ladies, whatever you want to give them all the disclosures. But in reality, I view them also as a protection for the syndicator because it's very powerful. And I've gone through this several times, where if somebody complains and you do get an inquiry from the state or the feds, and you send them all of your documents and you've got all your t's crossed, i's dotted they'll drop Mm -hmm. it right away. They're looking for the low-hanging fruit. And so when you've got your stuff in order, you're in good shape. When they ask for documents and you don't have anything and you just give them some couple of pieces of paper, they're going to dig further. So... It's whether they're accredited or not. I recommend if you're raising 100 to 200, it just doesn't make sense. You're not going to be able to raise money for that amount because of the compliance costs.
0: And also, I think in my mind, it depends a little bit on who your investors are, right? If your investors are your friends, families, and something goes sideways, you know, they're not likely to start suing you. They might not speak to you at Thanksgiving anymore, but it also depends a little bit on who your investors are, right? I mean, that's the way I look at it.
1: From a legal standpoint, there's no family and friends exemption, right? So, right. you know, and yes, you're right. You know, there's a couple of informal exemptions that people rely on. I would say one is obviously the good deal defense, right? Yeah. If you do the deal and you don't do it properly, but everybody makes a ton of money, nobody's going to complain, you'll probably get by fine. Uh, the other one is I wouldn't go with friends, but family. Yeah. If your mom or your dad, or your cousin or whatever invests, then, you know, what are the odds of them suing you? I don't know. It's happened before, you know, right? So so that's going to be a risk on your end. But from the law, from the government standpoint, that's going to be a security, even if you sell it to your mom and dad. And if they're passive, which is the key, if they're passive, you're dealing with a security.
0: That's right. So let's talk about the exemptions then. We're not going public. We're not registering shares. And we're going to try to avoid doing the illegal stuff. So that means the only option of the three is to find an exemption. Which exemptions do you normally use? And what are they? And why do you use them?
1: Great question. There's several exemptions out there, but the ones that we use and I talk about the most are really these exemptions called Regulation D exemptions, specifically, and this is as technical as I'm going to get, Rule 506B and Rule 506C, which I'm sure those of you who have been syndicating are aware of those. The reason those are important is because, according to the SEC, about 95% of all syndicators use those exemptions. And there's a couple of important reasons why. The two main ones are, number one, they create a safe harbor meaning if I comply with all of the points in those exemptions, then I am almost guaranteed, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but guaranteed that I complied with the securities laws. And so certainty is a big deal. I don't have to argue about it. If I hit my six or seven points, I'm in. The other big deal is that these exemptions preempt state law, which is just a fancy way of saying we essentially don't have to worry about the state securities laws other than the anti-fraud provisions. So obviously if you're defrauding your investors, they're still gonna have it. but I don't have to go through and look at the statutes of you know California or Illinois or whatever, the federal law preempts it. And so that also saves me time and money because I don't have to go into all those states and hire securities lawyers. So those I think are the two main reasons why 95% of the people use that. You can raise an unlimited amount of money. So even these big you know firms like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, they typically rely on 506B actually, even though they could probably go public or whatever, because you can raise a billion dollars
0: under these exemptions. Well, let's talk about each one of those real quick. 506B, and don't get too detailed, but what's the main difference between 506B and 506C?
1: So 506B is kind of the original exemption. It used to just be called 506. And I'll hit the highlights. You can raise an unlimited amount of money. You can take up to 35 non-accredited investors as long as they're sophisticated, which is a nice thing, especially for first-time syndicators, because now you can go after your friends and family who you know, don't make a bunch of money. You do receive restricted securities, which means once somebody invests in your deal, they're not allowed to sell that to the marketplace until after a year. You've got to hold it for a year, unless they want to go down the whole PPM route as well, which you know that's not going to make sense. They've got to kind of hold it for a year. The biggest drawback of 506b is that you are prohibited from advertising and generally soliciting. So you essentially have to have a pre-existing, substantive relationship with your investors. That's been kind of the bottleneck of all these years. Back in September of 2013, September 2013, they passed a new law, which they just essentially called 506C, which lifted the prohibition against advertising solicitation. So now, as of 2013, you can actually go advertise. You can put an ad in the Super Bowl. You can put an ad on the radio. You can do a webinar. You can do a seminar. You can just pitch your deals all day long. So that was great. The limitation with 506C is that you can only accept accredited investors and you must take reasonable steps to verify that they're accredited. You can't take their word for it. You can't just have a check the box questionnaire, which is what we do with 506B. You typically have to either get tax returns or documentation proving your income or net worth or get some kind of a verification letter from an attorney, a CPA, a broker deal or something like that.
0: Yeah. All right. Very good. So typically, we have been using 506B, and that yeah. requires a, what you call a substantive relationship, which means that you have to have a pre-existing relationship with someone, and that can be a mix of accredited and non-accredited investors. And then the big question people always ask me, Mr. SEC attorney, what is a substantive pre-existing relationship?
1: Yeah. So there's actually some, it's not case law, there's actually a great, the SEC calls these no action letters. There's a great a no action letter called Citizen VC. You can probably just Google it, just Google SEC and Citizen VC. But that's a no action letter where the attorney essentially laid out about eight things, eight or nine things that they were doing in order to establish a substantive relationship from a brand new person, somebody they never met before. They either got on their website or a podcast, somehow they got that person, they get into a relationship. And so that's kind of become the standard of, The more of those eight points that you can hit, the closer you can get to. So having obviously a deep conversation over the phone or in a meeting, get to know them, get to know their level of sophistication, send them a questionnaire, just like a lot of these brokerage firms do asking, you know, the experience, what's your net worth, you know, have you invested before all that kind of things, answer their questions, you know, get a credit report is actually in there. There's no magic timeline. It's not like, Oh, it's at three days, five days. You know, it's not the amount of time between the time you meet somebody and you establish that relationship. It's really the quality I used to say this before, like if if you and I go away for three days on a field trip, I'm going to get to know you pretty well versus I can know you for two years and you just send me an email once a week. That's probably not going to cut it. That's kind of the first, what I would call the first record date. You know, at some point you've established a substantive relationship, then you have to comply with a pre-existing, which essentially means at that point you could not offer them anything that's already, you know, going on right now or something in the past. Obviously, you've got to offer them the next one down on the pipeline.
0: So sometimes, as I see on Facebook or Bigger Pockets or these forums, and people will post a deal on there. Call yeah. me if you're interested. Is, yeah. that, is that complying with uh, SEC regulations?
1: Well, if it's on Facebook and it's on a – if their settings are set to public, which a lot of times they do, that's an advertisement. I mean, it's just right. like a website. People forget that their websites are blasted to the universe. So right. if you put people up on a website, that's going to be considered general advertising. So that would be legal if you're doing a 506C because that allows – you know, 506C, you're allowed to do that. But if you're relying on a 516B, I would definitely not be splattering that stuff on a public Facebook page. And in reality, you know, it's going to be a case by case. But, you know, even if it's private, how well do you really know these people that are on your Facebook account? You know, I go through my Facebook account. I don't I don't know half the people on there.
0: <laughs> so people are always trying to figure out how can they best raise money. right? And people are using social media to do that. So you can't really post a real live deal on Facebook or anything else. That, but how can people use... Facebook or social media to connect with new investors in the right way?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, I'm a big proponent of 506C because then that, you get rid of all the, those uncertainties. I mean, you do 506C, you can go on podcasts, you can put you know, stuff on Facebook or, or you can do a, mm. a webinar. I think on Facebook specifically, what works well is a webinar. Like put together a webinar and advertise the webinar on Facebook, don't put all the details on there of your deal. Just say, hey, I've got a deal, I've got a webinar. If you're interested, let me know. But again, that'll be it for a 506C if you don't already have people in your sphere, and you're looking for outside people, then the way to draw them in is not to talk about a specific deal. It's, you've got to talk about just your business in general. Hey, I'm a real estate investor. I wouldn't even talk about prior stuff, because that could be called what we call conditioning the market. So I wouldn't even talk about your prior performance. But like, hey, I'm Michael Blank, I, you know, I'm a real estate investor, I, you know, sometimes look for investors. And, you know, if you're interested, let me know. You don't have a specific offer at the time. You're not talking about your prior deals. And then once you get into that interaction with them, then you go through those eight steps that that citizen VC no action letter goes through to establish that substantive relationship. So you can then add them to your list and then do the next deal.
0: Excellent. That was really useful because we get those questions all the time about how to go about and doing this legally. Now let's talk about what this involves. So I've decided I'm going to do a 506B, which means I know people, but I can have some accredited. Or I'm going to do 506C, meaning that I may not know the people. I can advertise, but I can't take non-accredited people. So right. I take one of those two, depending yep. on where you are in life, and your career, and what you're going to do. Yep. And then what is next? Yep. So I, I call you up, Mauricio, I got this smoking hot deal. You say, great. What's next? The first step is to
1: put together some kind of a business plan. Some people call it an executive summary, business plan, prospectus, whatever you going to call it. That's really your marketing piece, and that's really that tells the story of why this is a good deal, why this is a great marketplace. All that fun stuff that's the first thing at least I want to look at because that's gonna tell me information about the deal I like to underwrite all the deals myself so I go through that business plan with a really a fine-tooth comb or that's even the right saying and then I will have a thousand questions about it and I will you know have a bunch of comments on it so we'll get on the phone and we'll work on that business plan to get it right once the business plan is done well, as part of the business, plan, we're also working on structure, right? So not only deal structure, but the entity structuring and, you know, is it debt? Is it equity? What's the you know, preferred returns? You know, 80, 20, seven, all that kind of stuff. And then the entities as well. But once that's done, then we get into drafting what I call the offering documentations, which are the PPM, which lists all the ways your deal can go wrong. I always equate it to when you go to the doctor, you know, I had my wisdom teeth taken out three or four years ago. And, you know, prior to putting me under, they give you that yellow sheet, that medical consent form and all the ways that this, you know, pulling your tooth could cause injury and infections and even death, right? That's what the PPM is, all the ways you can lose your money, all those disclosures. And that's kind of the key document. We also prepare a uh, specialized an operating agreement, because obviously you're dealing with investors. It's not going to be your standard simple operating agreement. You're typically dealing with multiple classes of investors, you know, class A, class B, maybe class C, but there's an operating agreement that actually formalizes the arrangement. There's a subscription agreement, which is kind of the document that you officially subscribe to the offering. There's either an investor questionnaire, if you're doing a 506B, where you just kind of check the box. If you're doing a 506C and you have to verify, what I typically recommend is, try and get their CPA to write a verification letter. I've got a template that I like to use because you know all they need to do then is just put their cover sheet on and sign it and it's got the right language in there. And if they can't get a CPA because either they don't have a CPA or the CPA doesn't feel comfortable doing it because there's certainly some exposure for the CPA if they get it wrong, then I recommend using a third-party verification company to do the verification because you don't want to be in the business of looking at people's financials and all that stuff, That's especially right. if you don't know them that well. So... If you use a third party, you don't see any of that, so you maintain that privacy, and the verification company just sends you a letter that says, hey, I've
0: reviewed this, I've verified them, and they're good to go. So do you have any verification companies out there that you've seen that people can take a look at?
1: Yeah, I I usually recommend a company called Verify Invest. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's just VerifyInvest.com. I've gotten some good feedback. I think a one called Second Market, which is more of a broker-dealer, so they're a little bit more expensive. But, you know, it's relatively inexpensive. I mean, these guys charge, you know, $75, maybe $100 a head, depending on how many mm-hmm. investors. And so, you, know, you get 10, 15 investors, it's, you know, 1500 bucks, 2000 bucks. Just put it in your budget as a line item, as a cost, and, and just don't worry about it. Because it's just a nightmare and a headache if you're dealing it on your own.
0: And if you're an accredited investor, this is a great way to make it very easy for someone to take you on an investment. So, the first step really is you're just trying to extract everything from the syndicator about the deal you kind of get hot and heavy a little bit. And when it's done, you got to get busy and you start drafting documents. You just brought up a pet peeve of mine. So
1: I mean, there's a lot of outfits out there that just kind of do templates or whatever, they just do it. And my thinking is, the only way I can figure out what needs to go in the documents in the disclosure document is to understand your deal intimately to talk to you to ask you questions to pull out the information, you may not even know it's important to disclose. And if you don't tell me, how am I going to know if it's disclosed? The only way I can do that is to underwrite the deal, talk to you on the phone, and keep pulling that information so I know what disclosures need to go in the documents. Because without knowing, the document just becomes kind of a templated thing, and it's kind of worthless.
0: Right. The point is this. The syndicator, I just had this conversation, they're very concerned about getting the SEC thing right. And I always tell people, look, you don't need to do that. You just talk about what you already know, which is the daggone deal. The attorney will fill out all the details. Yes. Yeah, so you go oh, yeah. off and for a week or two, you're hammering out these documents. Yeah. And at one oh, point, there's a the, draft and then I do them in the a week. syndicator-
1: I do them in a week. In a
0: week. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You do them in a week. And then the syndicator has to now read those documents. And there might be a little back and forth, might be some yep. questions. Yep. And then when they're done, now what happens?
1: Well, you've obviously been in conversations with your prospects. You've probably sent an email to your database. You've got it in conversations. Somebody says, look, I'm in or send me the, the offering docs. So at that point, you simply send the documents to your investors they have to obviously review, they execute all the documents, and that's when they would actually write you a check or wire you the money. You never want to take money from investors prior to them returning to you the PPM and all the disclosure documents, because the point of sale happens when that transaction happens. So You want to make sure they sign that document almost first and then wire you the money, but uh, certainly at the same time at a
0: minimum. Gotcha. So give everybody an idea of kind of timeline yeah. And then how much the whole thing costs? Like just, because yeah. it varies widely, obviously, but just so people have an you
1: know, idea. No, I've gone back and forth. I'm back on doing a flat fee. You know, one of the reasons I left my law firm was I was just tired of keeping track of six minutes of my life. And so I just got to the point where I just do a flat fee now. And like I mentioned, I've got one of the quickest turnaround times. I do them in a week, but it's just the caveat is a week once the business plan is done. But the business plan can take anywhere from a couple of days. Like I've got clients that were on, you know, syndication number twenty twenty five so we know each other really well and so you know the draft that I get is 95% done and I just need a day or so to just tweak it and we're done then I get other clients who are first time syndicators who give me a two page word document so that's a whole you know thing and then I've got clients who you know they're in no rush so I give them revisions and they they sit on them for three or four weeks and then they get me another round and and we might go months working on the business plan cuz there's no rush but once the business plan is done then I take a week to get the documents drafted and I've done them even shorter i mean i I always encourage people always call your attorney at the beginning of the process once you, you're in an LOI situation, that's when you really should be calling the attorney, not, not at the end. I've had people call me say, i got to close this thing in five days, and we get it done. So that's kind of the timeline. It really depends on the business plan, but once that it's a week. And then I recommend putting a line item in your budget for what I call legal and compliance, and I would put 15 grand in there. Twelve and a half is my fee, but there's also state filing fees. So one of the things we didn't talk about is that when you do a Reg D offering, even though we don't worry about the states too much, we do have to file a notice with the state, what's called a Form D with the SEC, and then we file a copy of that in the state. And each state wants their own filing fees that are typically, you know, anywhere from a couple hundred dollars to $500. So I like to have like a little $2,500 budget there for the filing fee. So fifteen grand overall. I do mine, you know, half up front half upon delivery of docs, makes that a little bit easier, but that's kind of the way I operate.
0: Yeah, I love it. You know, you make it sound so easy because it is from the syndicator's perspective. And like I said, I get a lot of people going, oh my gosh, I'm I'm so overwhelmed by the whole idea. It's like, look guys, you, all you got to do is you sit the attorney down and he's going to ask you stuff you already know and he'll take care of the rest. So, I,
1: I, we mentioned at the beginning of the show, your job is to play quarterback. You're putting yeah. the jigsaw all together. Your job is not to be the technician. You know, you're going to have your attorney. The attorney is going to worry about the legal stuff. Like you said, a good attorney is going to pull that information from you anyway, but just communicating what the deal is. And that's why the business plan is the first step, but then it's the attorney's job to pull the rest of it out of you. And they'll put all those disclosures in there. I do a lot of first time syndicators. There's a lot of consulting going on on the front. end. it's probably one of the more valuable things that I do, but because you have questions like this, Hey, can I do this on Facebook? Hey, I got this person here. Can I do this? Can I do that? And we're constantly either on the phone or emailing and kind of doing case by case scenarios. You know, for example, you know, a referral, to give you one kind of tidbit, if you get a referral, even though you may not have a pre-existing relationship with that person, you haven't advertised and you haven't solicited that person. So if you give me a deal, either I'm in or I'm not, and I say, look, Johnny, why don't you give Michael a call? I think he's got a great deal that you might be interested in. And he calls you or emails you and says, Mauricio, refer me to you. You don't know that guy, but you also have an and
0: So you'll be okay under a red offering. Yeah, exactly. Love it. So Mauricio, how can people find you?
1: That's where to find me is either through the website or uh, you can send me an email at cs at premierlawgroup.net. cs at premierlawgroup.net. I've got a, a blog or a article I just wrote last month called Eight Critical Steps to Practicing Safe Syndications. And if you want to shoot me an email, I'll happy to give you a copy of that so you can kind of go through that. And again, always happy to hop on the phone with anyone and talk
0: about uh, syndications and get them started. Awesome. Marisha, really, really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks, Michael, for having me. Appreciate it. It was fun. So bottom line, you do have to worry about SEC laws, but you don't really have to worry. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, the SEC attorney is going to sit you down. He's going to simply ask you what you already know about the deal, about your business plan, all that stuff. And he's going to go off and do a bunch of stuff. And that's it. Okay. It's really that simple. So don't worry about the whole SEC thing. Now, you do have to build the budget and the timeline into it, right? So he said about twelve dollars to $15,000. So build that into your budget. And then I would allow yourself three or four weeks from the time that you think you can start the process until you actually have the final paperwork done. And most of that time is, uh, is back and forth. Okay, so that's my advice to you. Let the attorney worry about it. So if you want to connect with uh, with Mauricio, go to cs at premierlawgroup.net and connect with him and see if he can help you on your next syndication. Now, speaking of syndication, if you haven't done so already, Make sure you download my free ebook about raising money. It's called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your Next Apartment Building. And it's at themichaelblank.com forward slash ebook. So the, T-H-E, my name, Michael Blank, B-L-A-N-K, forward slash ebook. And you can grab that and that will get you started on the path of raising money. Major aha moment that I had a long while ago when I when I figured out that actually I could raise money from people. So get started with that. If you are ready for more and you want to learn everything you need to know about syndication, check out my ultimate guide to buying apartment buildings with private money. And you can go check that out at themichaelblanc.com forward slash products, the ultimate guide. And that includes not only an online course, but includes a support program as well as two tickets to my event called the Financial Freedom Summit, where you actually get to experience working in small groups, what it's like to buy a 69-year-old apartment building and raising money and getting the financing, doing the diligence. We do that all in two days. It's really, really powerful, uh, very unique in the world. If you're interested in investing with us, and obviously I can't pitch you a specific deal we're doing right now, but if you're invested, then check it out and go to themichaelblank.com and click on the invest button. And that will basically just simply start a relationship that you'll have with us. And we want to get to know you better, and you want to get to know us better. And once we have a pre-existing relationship, Somewhere down the road, we can maybe present you with an opportunity. We get this ball rolling, go to the click on invest and start that conversation. If you're interested in raising money for us, this is really exciting. So you can be a syndicator and you can find deals and actually you can bring that deal to us through our deal desk. But if you want to uh, raise money for us, then go to michaelblank.com forward slash partner actually click on the partner link so that's if you want to uh, bring us a deal or if you want to help raise money for one of our deals again that's the way for for you to get to to get started with a conversation about that i'd love to talk to you about that if you have ability to raise money and you're looking to build equity passive income like every syndicator is we have a way for that as well so really really excited about that listen i really appreciate you guys spending time with me I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing
1: Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.